Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. It is Wednesday, January 10th, and I am reporting live from sunny Los Angeles, California. And by sunny, I mean I have not opened the blackout curtains and I could not tell you what is going on outside. But that is mostly because I'm in mourning for my career. This past week, something happened where it, it became clear to me there are two types of influencers in this world, two types of podcasters in this world. The ones that were invited to interview Gypsy Rose Blanchard and the ones that were not. And I don't know why this event made it abundantly clear to me I'm on the out crowd, but, you know, it's a tough pill to swallow. And that does feel like the wrong metaphor to use here, given she did suffer from Munchausen's by proxy. I, I just, It's always tough when you can tell you know, there was like a pretty wide net cast and you weren't, you know, you weren't the catch of the day. And that's fine. It's fine. Interviewing is not always my strong suit. I mean, I almost went into labor interviewing Caroline Calloway. I I, I don't, I don't do well with um, tension or even mild controversy. I don't know, you guys. Sometimes it's just nice to be invited, you know? You'll have to forgive me if the audio is a little different this week. I, I have so many travel mics and they're just not, my one at home is just so good, and th- these pick up a lot of plosives. <laughs> and um, anyways, just thank you for bearing with me. The next month is going to be a little chaotic, but I'll take you along with me. I'll be podcasting still every week, but I've just like never had to be gone this much, and I just don't know what it's going to look like, and I don't know what these episodes are going to look like, but I figure I'm just not going to overthink it, and we'll just chat about whatever is on my mind, your mind. Uh, and see where it goes. I'm trying to have like a more casual escapist approach to this podcast. You know, balance it out with the deep dives with the plath fills that I know not everybody engages with. But sorry, really fast. You know, I have to. FYI, uh, my book, One in a Millennial, is out January 23rd. Next week, I'm releasing one of the audiobook chapters for you to hear a preview of for free, just in case you want to hear some of it. And yeah, quick reminder, come see me on tour. It's gonna be really fun. And at the app, be there on five Instagram. There's a highlight for like every city where you can sign a form and like make friends because the book is about like all the F's I give about everything. And, you know, on the cover I wrote on the CD, friendship, uh, feelings, fangirls and fitting in. So I want to do my part for all the F's. And for the friendship part, I want it to be something where you can come solo and it's not weird because I think it's hard to make friends as an adult and any shared interest is great premise that just makes it a little bit easier if you want to go to be there in five.com slash live hyphen shows you can buy tickets there then go to at be there in five's instagram and go to the highlight to find the forms and yeah if you are in let me see if i can do this new york richmond virginia philly atlanta denver salt lake san francisco anaheim nashville dallas boston i will be in all of those places doing book tours, uh, which means like it's basically an hour long podcast live show that's like really fun and silly and like just a celebration of the, you know, female millennial experience. And then there's like an optional book signing thing um, that costs extra. And um, I'm excited for you to read it. And yeah, again, be there in five.com slash live hyphen shows. But let's get to this week's topic. There's a really interesting thing happening in terms of like a social media trend uh, overlapping with like existential questions we can ask ourselves about womanhood and consumerism. And that is people talking about 
like 10 year olds at Sephora or even like Christmas present hauls, I was starting to see like, whoa, these really young girls are just like knee deep in Lululemon scuba sweatshirts and leggings and drunk elephant products. To us, they look quite young and the price points are quite high. And I think there's just like a lot of fascination with the quality of the product itself that young people are consuming, but also the type of products themselves that young people are consuming. And beyond that, there's another layer where people seem really irritated by young girls in places like Sephora or Ulta, kind of like ransacking the samples. And it's just, it's a layered conversation because it's like about the behavior in the stores, about the products and price points themselves, about the ingredients in the products on the young skin. And then it's like about the beauty and anti-aging standards. You know, there's like so many ways you could talk about this. And it's, it's even harder because it's not even the usual, you know, conundrum we can apply with the Britney Spears, you know, not a girl, not yet a woman divide. We can apply to kind of that like age 16 to 20 range where it's like your late teens. I think like that's not a girl, not yet a woman. This is like not a kid, not yet a teenager. We're talking like prepubescent. We're talking like the Dora the Explorer to Sephora the Explorer pipeline. You know, parents across the country are trying to figure out how their little girl that just had that childlike pep in her step, tossing on her backpack and going on adventures like Dora, now takes that same backpack to Sephora and fills it with like polypeptide cream. Like, what even is that? And if this sounds boring to you, I promise we'll make it interesting. And I crowdsourced to get different opinions because I'm not the mom of a tween. And I wanted to make sure I was doing right by all of your opinions. But I think there's a lot of, of fun stuff we could dig into here. So listen to some of these clips. Has anyone else noticed that like every time you go into Sephora now, it's just all little girls? And I have never seen it to this extent. I don't know if I wasn't paying attention, but I just don't remember um, any beauty stores ever being like this before. But I swear, every time I go to these expensive, expensive makeup stores, it's just all really young little girls, which is really upsetting to see. I have some things to say about Sephora kids. And let me tell you something about these little girls. They are rude. These 10-year-olds are crazy. Like, literally the most feral. I was a camp counselor. The Sephora kids are different than any type of kids. They just have no concern about adults. So the rules of, like, staying in a kid's place, like, that doesn't exist in a Sephora. That is now an 11-year-old's domain. Dear younger kids and teens, can you please stop doing this to the testers inside of Ulta's and Sephora's? Now when you're influencing people, don't even assume that you're talking to a fellow like 21-year-old, 25-year-old, like a 30-year-old woman, like, you know, these women that you're talking to that you think you're talking to, you're not. You're talking to a literal 11-year-old who thinks that, you know, she can do the same things as a 30-year-old influencer can do. And it's just like, no, ma'am, put that down. Have you thought about anti-aging, though? Because now that you're 11, you should seriously consider using an eye cream. We're hooked back to drunk elephant. Like, I'm about to make a smoothie. So annoying. 
I already have like all through the Charlotte Tilbury glow ones and now there's like nothing left for me to buy. I worry for the girls. I really, really do. There is a reason that TikTok has an age restriction, right? There's a reason that all of these platforms have an age restriction. This conversation's so interesting to me because there are people that seem frustrated that kids are like existing in adult spaces, period. There are people that seem concerned, though I don't know if it's legitimate or performative, about how these products and chemicals will fare on young skin, given, you know, things like retinol are for cell regeneration and, you know, young people's cells are regenerating just fine if they've ever even generated long enough to need to regenerate, you know, like they're, they're good, they're baby cells. And then some people seem really focused on how parenting is responsible for this. Some people seem really focused on how influencers are responsible for this. I think some people feel sad that kids that young, instead of just being able to be kids, are already seemingly concerned with things like anti-aging. Like you, you, one would need to age first <laughs> to, you know, even start thinking about that. And all of that is valid. I asked you to write in if you had any strong feelings about this so I can hear from your personal experience as parents. I mean, I'm a parent now, but my son is five months old and he's more of an Ulta guy anyway, so I don't really have firsthand experience beyond my own in girlhood. And I don't think it's necessarily to do fair to do a direct comparison because they are different times. But part of me is kind of like, I, I think we need to get our reactions under control specifically clean and clear and under control because we did this too I mean I guess I can only say I did this too but I'm pretty sure a lot of you did this too and I didn't just do this too at limited Two, which is the title of the first chapter of my book because I care so much about this tween space I like wanted to write about it at length but I, yeah I didn't just do this at limited Two, which was like a space reserved for teens I took my leaf-raking budget to CVS and did a supermarket sweep of Noxima and Stridex and that L'Oreal fish shampoo and, you know, bonbons and Dr. Pepper lip smackers. And as a tween, you know, from the bead lizard of it all, I was very into beading. I didn't discriminate. That also included micro beans. Fuck the environment. I want exfoliation. Say knives. I mean, come on. You know how fast I sprinted? to my local drugstore when Maybelline came out with their cool effect line that was like icy blues and whites and pinks and they were like chubby eyeliner pencils that would just, yeah, ladies frost yourselves. I mean, I, I would go spend all my allowance on hard candies and hard candy nail polishes and if I was lucky, have some left over to get the latest purple stick deodorant that was called Teen Spirit because my personal nirvana was to smell like Teen Spirit stick deodorant. Not to brag, but it was invisible dry, no white residue. My favorite scent was Orchard Blossom. And, you know, I would say that more often than not, teen girls start trends or popularize things they're never given, given credit for. And... It's just worth pointing out that Teen Spirit Stick Deodorant came out in early 1991. Nirvana's t Smells Like Teen Spirit came out in September 1991. I mean, that's kind of an interesting coincidence. All I remember of the commercials is that at the end they would go, Bye Menon. <laughs> um, anyway, I feel like on this podcast I've talked a lot about Bath and Body Works, Hot Girl Sense, and mall culture overall. 
But like, I don't know if I've talked enough about like just general toiletry culture. The skincare craze is not, was not back then what it is now, obviously. I, I just think it's a matter of semantics, like what we call it and the type of products that kids slash tweens are interested in. I actually think we did a ton of skincare in our day, but it was with one goal and one goal alone to prevent or eliminate acne. And now it just seems to be more about moisture and anti-aging, which it's hard to say. Like, I don't really actually hear kids talking about anti-aging as the goal. Like when I watch these get ready with me's, it's more like I think that they're interested in the brand name because of its social capital, like a drunk elephant that's very popular amongst the youngsters. And they maybe have some familiarity with the ingredients, but like, I don't know if they're going out of their way to purchase something anti-aging when they're like 11. I just think that whatever, you know, products are trickling down from older people or influencers, they get popular and then other young girls want them. And granted, I know we're talking about Sephora here, um, but I was just trying to think back on like my interest in these things and even if I didn't have like a tween third space would I have still been interested in this stuff and the answer is absolutely because yeah my neighborhood friends we'd ride our bikes to the shopping center that had like a food line a CVS a video time a zero subs I mean what what more could you ask for and like yeah basically turn over our piggy banks just buying like face wash, deodorant, nail polish, and like lip balm. I, I don't even know why. I remember even wanting to buy Mr. Bubbles in that like that pink bubble bath. I didn't even take baths. I just, I liked products and I like have a distinct memory of really liking products almost as much as I wanted to like be buying candy. And that was even, I feel like before or around the same age when we started going to the mall or like our parents would drop us off at the mall. But the second I had zits. I was all over those proactive infomercials. I mean, I think the craziest thing, it's like, I know we're worried about the kids and, you know, I don't know. Do they need like a hyaluronic acid serum? Like, I don't know. They don't need retinol and we need to be careful of, you know, certain products, obviously. Talk to your dermatologist, not me. I think that perhaps what's the more like exhausting thing about womanhood is the moving targets of beauty and how even when you think the thing that you're doing is timeless or scientific, you don't even realize it is kind of trendy. Because when we were younger, we weren't glazed donuts, we weren't moisturizing our skin to be, you know, little adolescent dewdrops. We were sucking the moisture from our faces with the hoover of life. I know people think millennials are thirsty, but like, no, we were literally dehydrated to the point where every night we somehow believed that the right thing to do was put astringent on a cotton pad and coat your face until you experience that uh, je ne sais quoi where you move it and it itches because it's so dry. Because the thing is, in our day, Oil was the enemy. Acne was the enemy. Everything we did was for the sake of drying. Like, do you guys remember that like ocean breeze, like radioactive blue astringent or maybe it was a toner? Almost it was it almost looked like it was the color of like barbicide, you know, what they put the combs in at the hair cuttery. 
I want to look up to see what ingredients are in that. I mean, all I cared about were like pimples, blackheads, and oil. And I do feel like I was talked to a lot about skincare and like magazines and stuff. And it was cleanse, tone, moisturize. And I don't even really understand where we stand with toners. Oh, no, it's called Seabreeze. Oh, and it's still around. Oh, that's 4.7 stars on Amazon. Add to cart. Just kidding. <laughs> Fresh, clean, astringent. Gentle formula, deep cleans and refreshes without drying. Yeah, right. I mean, the irony of all ironies, it's, it's this gorgeous blue color that makes you think of the sea and then makes you think of water. And then it's confusing when your skin's so dry, you know, it could easily ignite a brush fire. But, you know, while adolescent boys' products, if you can't, I, I am recording while laying down in my hotel bed if my voice is weird. This is, I feel like we're gal pals at a sleepover. At this time, it's funny because as a young girl, you have like the L'Oreal fish shampoo and like, you know, you, you, you do get the perks of like a two for one. But then everything starts to fragment and require you to buy the most products ever while boys products like I, i've talked to to you before about my rage that you you can be a male and buy a three for one shampoo body wash conditioner it's just it's not right and they use it for their face too it, i saw a grown man put lotion in his hair recently not my husband but my friend's husband because he just didn't have anything else on him and he could just like style his hair with hotel lo- I, I can't um, but like we get to an age where we don't get a three in one, we get a one in three where we think we have to cleanse, tone, moisturize, but not just that. We need it in beautiful packaging. We need one of them to be purple. We want it to have alcohol in it so that our face can be as dry and crackly and lifeless as our breath from drinking the lowest of the bottom shelf aristocrat. When we put on the Clinique three-step system, step number two, the clarifying lotion that still to this day has alcohol in it and is designed to like strip your face of any and all moisture for like a mattified finish, which is allegedly preps it for a moisturizer. But I don't know if I believe it. And I feel like gaslit for all the days that I rushed from the frat basement listening to one two-step to get home to a Clinique three-step that either wasn't mine and I was using my roommates or was a travel size free gift with purchase because that shit was expensive and I had already conned my mom into probably getting a proactive subscription. Uh, Clinique three-step is like, that was our drunk elephant. And I just don't think we're better off for it. So while I hope drunk elephant has done their due deal and is doing right by this generation, I do think moisture sound like makes more sense to me than whatever the hell we were doing. And I say this not to dismiss your concerns, but maybe just to like temper your fears a bit, because I think a lot of this behavior is, you know, I was going to say a tale as old as time, but like, I, I think Americans were predominant. I do think it's like newer to the 20th century for young Americans to like be empowered to be consumers. Actually, do you want a history lesson? Fun fact, it's something I learned researching for my book. I like to talk about these topics and remind you that we all participated in stuff kind of like this so you don't lose sleep. But if that doesn't help, consider getting a Helix mattress. I've now expanded my Helix evangelizing outside of my family circle. We spread the news to our childcare. Near demanding, they replaced their mattress with a Helix. It was, you know, I gifted it for the holidays. But because if anybody ever mentions issues with their back or having trouble sleeping, I just want to spread the gospel because... The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, 
the Helix Elite Collection. They have mattresses for big and tall sleeper and a mattress made just for kids. And the way you know which mattress is for you and will work for your body is you take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And it's shipped to your and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge. It'll ask you, do you run hot when you sleep? Do you have a partner you want to factor in? Do you, you know, have trouble with your back? Do you sleep on your back, your side, your stomach? All sorts of questions, but it's really quick. It'll tell you what mattress you need. And obviously, it's kind of tricky to buy a mattress online because you want to be able to test it out. But Helix knows that. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. The one I sleep on most nights is the Helix Desk Lux. We have a softer one that's the Sunset that our guests kind of like fight over. Also, I like to remind you the Helix supports military first responders, teachers, and students by giving them a special discount on site. And I didn't know this. Helix, a lot of mattresses have fiberglass in them, which can be harmful to your health, but Helix does not, FYI. But also, they have over 12,000 five-star reviews. You don't even have to listen to me. But by supporting Helix, you are allowing them to support me and this show, which means a lot to me. So if you're in the market for a mattress anytime soon... Give it a try and thank me later. And Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash be there in five and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. That's helixsleep.com slash be there in five and use code helixpartner20 for 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows. So this is, this is from... Uh, a PDF I have on my computer from when I was researching my book from teachrock.org, uh, which is actually like a venture between like Bono, Martin Scorsese, Springsteen, Stevie Van Zandt, like a different people in entertainment are adjacent to music called The Birth of the American Teenager, talking about how in the early 20th century, the period between childhood and adulthood was simply called adolescence, but post-war, this age cohort now known as teenagers developed a distinct identity and established itself as an important demographic group that would come to have enormous influence on American life. Because of the post-war economic boom, many white middle-class teenagers had more leisure time and more spending power than previous generations. And if they had jobs, they were able to keep their earnings rather than contribute them to the support of the family, as they generally did in early generations. American business soon realized the enormous potential of this emerging market, gearing advertising of everything from soda pop to cars in order to cash in on teens' growing purchasing power. Come in every segment of the entertainment world, records, radio, television, movies were not far behind. Even the concept of an allowance, I mean, I'll have to ask like my parents if that's what they called it when they were younger, but that's apparently more like associated with even Gen X and like latchkey kids and, you know, consumer spending started amongst teenagers post-war from their actual jobs but like being given money like to simply exist, meaning like your parents covered off your basic needs and money that you were given wasn't necessarily to cover off your basic needs, but like you all of a sudden had consumer spending power and discretionary income or funds. But like the ways we look at our life phases are kind of often this interesting hybrid of our life stage, yes, but also how we're looked at not as humans, but as consumers from advertisers. Because, I mean, even like generational terms are kind of marketing tools, like they're segmentations, they're birds of a feather, they're oversimplified means to like Myers-Briggs are birth years, or um, in the case of teens and tweens, like they're very much terms that were coined and calcified in the context of how they were being marketed to. So even 
the term teenager is more distinct to the second half of the 20th century. But the term tween, and especially in terms of creating a tween space, this is actually kind of original to limited too, weirdly. And I think a lot of us in having this dialogue this week, well, at least my initial response, honestly, was like, there are no tween third places anymore. But actually, it's not like tween third places have been around since the beginning of time and faded away. That's vi- very distinct to millennials. And one of the reasons my first chapter is about limited to, it's not even, I mean, it's about limited to, but it's like a broader metaphor. If you want to read the full chapter, the first chapter was released because, I mean, God bless, a kind of like pinch me moment. Marie Claire picked one in a millennial for their January book pick. And so they put up the first chapter. And uh, it's asking a kind of like similar questions through a like long teen talk Barbie metaphor of like this Barbie was programmed to say things like, let's go shopping. Do you have a crush on anyone? Wouldn't you love to be a lifeguard? Let's go to the mall. And then ultimately got pulled from shelves because it said math class is tough. But I'm kind of like, wait, I loved all those things. Like math class was tough for me. A lot of parent and feminist groups didn't like it. It got pulled from shelves. And they replaced this Barbie with all these teen phrases with a mute model. And this mute model is kind of a motif throughout my book of how I often feel like as a woman, when you like surface level things, you're made to feel like people would prefer a mute model and your intellect is easily conflated with your interests. And, um, you know, I think back on my childhood and hence the math class is tough of it all. I wasn't a woman in STEM. I played Mall Madness and Dream Phone and Girl Talk and Pretty Pretty Princess and my parents offered me things that were a little bit more cerebral, but I wasn't interested. I wanted to play Girl Talk, the game of truth or dare, and I wanted to live with the consequences of the zit. The, the, remember, they would give you a panel of zit stickers, and the consequence for not obliging the truth or the dare was you got a zit. Like, that's what we were afraid of. Zits were the enemy. We were a very anti-acne generation in the same way I think these kids are anti-aging, whether they realize it or not. And anyway, that chapter, I say a common theme you'll hear throughout this book is how I often struggle with the dichotomy between celebrating the things I grew up with for what they were while also criticizing the way they shaped my worldview. I know that in many ways, my interests are a product of the boxes I was placed in. But when you're inside a box and don't know any better, it looks a lot like freedom. So I decorated that box the best I could and had a great time playing games of being at the mall, playing truth or dare and talking about boys, zit stickers and all. Looking back on my girlhood, I'm both charmed by my earnest devotion to semi-sexist things and horrified that they represented a set of options that seemed so comprehensive of my worldview, I didn't even notice it was narrow. But when I think about the ever-present misogynistic trivializing of women's interests, I also feel frustrated by the hypocrisy and want to defend all of this behavior vehemently. How dare they criticize the way we've chosen to decorate the boxes they've put us in. I find there's great irony in how society aggressively promotes the same things to girls they ultimately shame them for caring about like growing up surrounded by media that taught us only to care about boys' clothes and shopping, only to be told you're vapid if you're boy-crazy, love fashion, and hang out at the mall. Shows like Baywatch were made to pander to straight males whose gaze is often centered in mass culture, so this trickled down to girls like me developing a fascination with the glamour of lifeguard culture, which likely showed up in the focus groups that influenced Teen Talk Barbie. It's all interconnected. It bothers me to no end that the same world that programmed us to like these things also tells us that we shouldn't tell people they are, are our interests if we want to be taken seriously. When it comes to women, it often feels like they'd prefer the mute model. And I'm really not trying to be annoying. I'm just so excited that we're having these conversations because these are the things I think about all the time. 
think that it's complicated because like I was writing about this from my own girlhood as an adult that like understands things now, understands capitalism and consumerism and harsh beauty and body standards and the centering of the male gaze and how it trickles down through culture. But I'm also saying I had a great time and I really liked these things. And I had so much fun at the mall and I had so much fun trying on different versions of myself and experimenting with products. And like, I think that it's okay to not feel one way about this. I kind of wanted to set up the book with this like internal tension. I often feel this back and forth of like, well, is this stuff I really like or was I programmed to like it? And okay, if all this stuff represents the worst parts of like, you know, capitalism and the patriarchy and these impossible standards we're setting ourselves up for, is it bad that I also had a good time? You know, we can work toward bigger shifts that ideologically align with how we want the world to be. But like in this given moment, if you can't overhaul capitalism and the patriarchy and all of the things that tint these behaviors a bit darker, then I'm kind of like, I don't know, do, do do we just do what we can in the meantime to exist in our leisure and to honor our sources of pleasure? I guess my point is like, we can have a bigger existential discussion about us feeling a bit of an like uh, an, an uneasiness toward young people growing up too fast and wanting makeup and skincare and anti-aging and like have a broader patriarchal discussion. Yeah, like a lot of these products are born from impossible standards that women are held to and so on and so like yes obviously but I don't know how we take on the long-standing history of young girls being interested in things that they're a little too young for like makeup I think we just figure out how to navigate the terms of this being the reality and do it in the healthiest way possible because I don't know if I think that that exploration is inherently bad or oppressive because here's the thing about tweens. They're in a transitional life phase between being a kid and being a teenager. And the kid part of that VED diagram is that they, they play. They imagine. They like to pretend to be in an adult context. And just like you might play doctor or teacher or lawyer or, in my case, vague businesswoman behind my dad's desk and or newscaster, or my friend Elise and I would always play Secret Garden. It was dark. I can't get into it. I think at the heart of it, some of these youngsters in Sephora are playing. And is that the right space for that? Maybe not. I can't say I even go to a Sephora that often, you guys. To me, it's always been Pink Eye RS. Um, but like, yeah, I do think parents need to teach their kids to respect public places and to be polite and have manners and so on and so forth. Uh, and I hate if they're rude to the staff and they're ransacking the store and making people's jobs. It's good to generally behave kindly when we're out in public. But I don't resent young people existing in adult spaces when I'm not totally sure where else they're supposed to go. And I think for me, the mall was such an important place where I was able to perform my fact-finding mission about the world that I was so interested in but didn't have access to like the mall. It was an important space for me. And there aren't a lot of places where kids on a leaf-raking budget are like allowed to take up space. And the atrium of a mall, what I like to call a linoleum castle of consumerism, like it felt like the apex of my existence at the time. Because it wasn't home, it wasn't school, it was a third place. 
And malls, period, can serve as this, but malls aren't really what they once were. And they don't like feel as safe anymore, one. But two, tween targeted stores in malls have mostly gone out of business. For some background on Limited 2, okay, Limited 2 was created by the Limited Inc. in 1987. And at first, it was infants, toddlers, and younger girls version of the Limited, which was the adult oriented brand. From 1987 to 1995, the stores increased from two to 288 retail locations. And in 1996, so that was when I was nine, a new senior management team refocused Limited 2 into a preteen girls fashion store. I think this is why this is perhaps memorable to me, because when I was nine years old, the brand underwent a shift in strategy. Instead of targeting moms, they started to deliberately target children eight to 14, taking credit for opening the first tween store. A Biz Journal article from August of 99 says, but rather than market its hip clothing and accessories to mothers, Two Inc. aims at the youngsters themselves, a strategy most used most successfully at its girl power stores. To capture the youngsters' interest, store designs are marked with the Daisy logo on front signs, a personal care sampling table, features Limited to's Girl Care branded cosmetics, and shoppers can experience light shows and use mock payphones and listen to music or call friends within the stores. I mean, even the term tweens, it's a portmanteau of between and teen. And it's like this very specific intermittent phase where you are partially still a child. Sociologists like talk about this transitional age as being like marked by still being a kid, but being excited about growing up. Well, I'm not like really looking to praise something limited slash L brands did, given that Les Wexner was at the helm. And we've talked a lot about him with the Abercrombie and Victoria's Secret of it all. What's crazy is. This was such a deliberate business strategy by the limited brands to target a specific segment of very young girls that had some purchasing power. But it also did something good for that age range in that it gave them things that were clothes and products like very specifically designed for that age range that was trying to allow younger girls to express themselves through fashion that they because they were the age where they were probably like picking out their own clothes maybe had an allowance i think limited to even though it targeted what did i say eight to 14 i think limited to is more like eight to 11 and then like delia's girlfriends la alloy kind of like the catalogs were like 12 to 14 and that's when we started getting way more interested in like abercrombie and american eagle depending on how alternative you were, you know, Hot Topic, Rave, Deb, Spencer Gifts, uh, you know, I don't discriminate wherever you want to get your profane keychains and studded belts from. But the specific thing about these, about Limited to Injustice and Claire's is like the stuff pandering to the kid part of that age group where it was bright colors, playful patterns, sparkles, glitter. It was like, it was like shopping at a store like an adult would, but like everything was like just looked a little bit make believe, if that makes sense. But what's interesting is these kind of like juniors stores like Justice and Claire's, they were popular in the 2000s, even for some of the 2010s. But Justice and Claire's both filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, in late 2020, Justice was sold for $90 million due to their parent company filing for bankruptcy. Claire's filed for bankruptcy, oh, in 2018. Both of these companies have been continuing to close their stores since the filings operating online successfully, some stores are still open, blah, blah, blah. 
Tweens now shop at any popular teen retailer such as PacSun, Shein, Urban Outfitters. Anyway, there are like plenty of think pieces about this in terms of tween spaces kind of fading away. I was reading this on Upworthy, which reminded me of the store 579 that like, what on what planet? I mean, so bad. Yeah. Ju- oh, 600 limited two stores decided to convert to the Justice brand. Stores were brightly colored with lots of sheer glossy and lightly colored lip glosses, eyeshadows, blushes, and perfumes. There was toys mixed with the tween young teen section, giving kids to fully a chance to fully embrace the in-between of being a child and an adult. It doesn't seem like there's a comfortable place for tweens to stretch their legs and get a lay of the land on their way into adulthood. So while other people may think it's a lack of supervision, parents spoiling their, spoiling their children are worse. Parents only having children for accessories. What? Could simply be that tweens ha- don't have their own space. And that was one of my first reactions was like, well, where are they supposed to go? I mean, you know, you kind of like want to be out in the world and they're, you know, old enough where they can like leave the house and have like a little bit of autonomy or supervised autonomy and they want to like experience the world but where do you go it's not like I spent all my time at limited to or Claire's but I sure as hell spent a lot of time at the mall and these are things I don't know and this is why I want to get into your emails like are kids going to roller rinks and ice skating do they go to the local high school football game on Friday night like I'm trying to think of the stuff I did in middle school it started with Cotillion, and then we'd go to Arby's and get concretes after Cotillion, sometimes at the mall food court. And then older middle school, and we weren't doing Cotillion. And I'm, I'm not like a deb. I don't mean that. It's just like, I don't know if where you're from if they do this. But like, we literally went and took like weird ballroom dance classes, which was harrowing if you grew before the boys did. And if you want to know, you know, my personal origin story for realizing whenever stood a chance, it's when we had to wear white gloves at Cotillion in case the boys Hands were sweaty, you know, because that's my problem. Let that marinate. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers peace of mind, convenience, incredible value. You can easily find high-quality meat and seafood you can trust, like 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, wild-caught seafood. I recently dabbled in, they have like chicken nuggets. I got chicken wings that I like to make in my air fryer with my own seasoning. I got some breakfast sausage and chorizo, which I haven't tried before from them. Really excited. And some like dinner sausages too. Really thought I'd spice it up a bit, especially if I get snowed in this weekend. It's delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping. And I just think that going to the grocery store and trying to find these higher quality cuts of meat, whether it's because of a more ethical animal practice or a more sustainable farming practice or the, the, the titles assigned to different cuts of meat, like, mark up the price so much. And I just don't always know of the quality or, like, loopholes and what I'm getting. And I like having access to higher quality cuts of meat at a more reasonable price. And I just like having especially this available in my freezer in the winter so I can just eat when I need to and not go to the grocery store as much. And I don't know, where else can you get free protein for a year? Because new members get two pounds of ground beef, three pounds of chicken breast, and two pounds of salmon for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash be there in five and use code be there in five to choose your free offer and get $20 off. That's two pounds of ground beef, three pounds of chicken breast, and two pounds of salmon for free in every order for a whole year. Gosh, I love seeing what they come up with. That's a good deal. Thanks, ButcherBox. But, I mean, I'd, I'd say the normal things people did was at first cotillion on weekends. And then once we grew out of that, later middle school, we would go in the fall to the f- high school's football game. And we'd, like, hang out behind one of the goalposts. And it was, like, all middle school kids. 
that was like the hot spot to put on your coziest fall attire, look cute as a button, maybe a little, you know, red nose with your cozy hot chocolate curled up near your face like the 2010s bloggers would all do with their huge ass mugs the size of their head and their chunky knit sweaters with their impossibly bony clavicles sticking out when it's like, aren't you trying to be warm? Why is your shoulder bare? I would put on my coziest outfit and stare at my crush from across the goalpost and, you know, think about our future together while I made sure to never make eye contact, never speak to him. And I mostly just focused on eating concessions and seeing if I could, you know, get anybody's confessions about making out behind the equipment shed. Actually, that was like, that's like a core memory that I have not thought about in a long time is like hanging out at the like local public high school football games on Friday nights as a middle schooler in this like pod of middle schoolers. Anyway, and then there was also youth group, which is like another layer that I can't get into right now, which is its own form of sneaky evangelizing because I think that they get kids at a very specific age when they need somewhere to go. And a lot of parents like would be that wouldn't let their kids like go unsupervised somewhere else would be like more than comfortable taking, you know, having their kids go to a co-ed church function, assuming it's like supervised and probably not realizing they'll be having extra cheese pizza with a side of a soul saving. But anyway, I think our third places were the mall, Barnes and Noble, in the summer, the pool. And like there was one period in middle school where people were very into meeting up at Skate Nation, which is an ice skating place. I don't know, like we at any given point up until we could drive, there was always a place we could go on weekend nights where our parents would drop us off. And those probably still exist to an extent. But I guess if we're specifically talking about where kids can go and like experiment by like trying products and kind of cosplaying consumerism. Yeah, you could go to the mall, but like the vibe just isn't really there anymore for brick and mortar. There's a lot of nice malls in the Chicagoland area, but they just don't feel like places teens are hanging out. And I don't really know why. So it's interesting that Sephora is so specifically associated with this phenomenon. But like, it is pretty fun that they have all the testers in the world. I mean, I'm an adult and I go to frozen yogurt places for that reason. What's funny is there was a Sephora at our mall, but like, I just knew it was just so out of budget that like I wasn't that interested in it. However, I was interested in like makeup counters at department stores. So I don't really know why I wasn't as Sephora-ward. <laughs> Sorry, don't you hate when I laugh at myself <laughs> when, uh, when I was younger? But anyway, this is not a helpful episode. This is it's literally now uh, 2.25 a.m. I have a flight at 7 and I'm just going to like talk to you and edit it and put this out probably because this conversation will probably be gone next week. And not all of you are that into Plathville, so I feel like I should give you another episode. Anyway, I hope I made it clear. Like, the point of this podcast is not really to have a take, but just to kind of explore the different layers of this. So that was kind of just me talking about, like, third places, tweendom, the fading of the segment tween, even though it was kind of like a marketing segment the Limited 2 made up to sell to them anyway, but that I actually think that that space and this, like, hanging out at the mall and doing this kind of exploring was like really helpful and important for me to the point where I wrote about it at length and that it's hard to like even understand, I think, what this looks like in other generations, because even this concept of like kids as consumers is like new ish when you think of like the span of history. But beyond them, like having a physical place to go, it's like the, you know, concern of like they're growing up so fast. I look at tweens today and I'm like, it is wild that they're like beautiful. They have like Haley Bieber slicked back hair and glazed donut skin and 
You know, it's like, oh, is your outfit head to toe a ritzy? I just, you know, invested in the Wilford Effortless pan at age 35. I mean, if you want to pay for an overpriced basic, come to one of my live shows. No, but really, I do feel bad charging people to see me and I'm very basic. I'm just kind of like, this is so interesting. We we definitely looked more like kids. I had two orthodontic expanders at the time. Like I had a huge ass gap in my teeth. I don't know. My body was more awkward than these kids. It is kind of remarkable how they're like completely avoiding an awkward stage. And I'm generalizing, obviously. But sometimes I see these youngsters in the wild and I'm just like shocked by how like put together they are. And um, I think that it's not just about the tween segment like dwindling for places to go. It's that like the tween segments dwindling, period. And there's a few reasons for this, if I understand correctly. So when media was primarily being consumed on television and those ad dollars are bought on, you know, age and gender demographics, like maintaining age specific programming with TV is pretty easy. Maintaining age specific programming with print is pretty easy. We used to consume media and advertisements in like really specific mediums that allowed us to be watching or reading content specific to our age group and advertisers would buy into that age group but with like the digitization of everything and the convergence of content online like it's harder to carve out specific spaces for programming for this age for ads for this age and the everything kind of blurs between like what's tween what's teen and even what's adult and when you think about them having access to social media and how difficult it is to really control the algorithm uh, they're just by default going to have access to older trends older lifestyles and by the way not even just like ogling or looking at from afar like we did when we noticed what you know teenagers were up to they can like access how-to videos for makeup tutorials and hair tutorials and messy bun tutorials and skincare tutorials and skincare routines and product hauls and clothing hauls. And I think what's so interesting about my youth is that we would see how people lived that were in life phases we were excited about but didn't have access to yet and kind of have to do a bunch of R&D to figure out how they got that way in the form of like YM, 17, Cosmo, Cosmo Girl, whatever it was, and like asking older siblings. And we wouldn't have had to have had to go through all that labor and experimentation. And I think some of the fun would have been lost if I could have literally seen like a how-to video or someone's 10-step skincare routine that I idolized at an insecure age, you know? It makes sense to me that they're adopting the trends and products and routines of slightly older girls simply because they have access to what they're doing at like a pretty diagnostic level. And I think our magazines just, they were advertising stuff like Clean and Clear and Strident and Teen Spirit. Like our teen magazines that were the how-tos for how to look like those girls weren't stuff like Drunk Elephant or Dior or Rare Beauty or whatever the hell it is. Like it was pretty drugstore adjacent because the people funding those magazines were like Procter & Gamble and Colgate Palmolive, you know? It was just like consumer packaged goods. So occasionally I would see some cosmetic stuff, but it was typically like Maybelline vibes. Like I I just don't even remember having high-end makeup brands on my radar with the exception of Clinique. 
So it's not like we stayed out of adult spaces, didn't bother people. Are you kidding me? You know how many times my, you know, we were like middle schoolers trying to pretend like they couldn't tell we were kids at a Clinique counter and like one person would buy a singular lip gloss and then we'd like all split the free gift with purchase. I mean, we terrorized makeup counters back then too, but those, the counters just don't have the samples out. So yeah, I mean, in a post-COVID world, should we really have samples out? I don't even know. I think if you took away the samples, the tweens would probably not come and knock in the way they do now. I mean, I know people joke that their parents are spending so much money on these nice products, but a lot of those kids in those groups, parents aren't giving them that money and they can still put on the makeup and try it and do the thing. You know what I mean? I think that's like a part of it. Anyway, I'm rambling. There have always been parents that get kids stuff that feels way too nice for their age. (laughs) I don't feel like that's necessarily new. I think that like them going to Sephora and buying products that are like drunk elephant when they probably don't really understand the ingredients, but like see other girls with it. And then it becomes like more about acquiring social capital than an anti-aging product. I don't think it's that different from like Bath and Body Works or like, you know, Victoria's Secret body spray. I mean, Bath and Body Works wasn't cheap. That's why I had to go for the hand sanitizers. They were like under $5. But the, the like sets with the the body splash, also LOL body splash. <laughs> By splash, you mean it hits your skin and bounces right off. It never, ever lingers any sort of fragrance on you whatsoever. I mean, I had to cough up a pretty penny for Moonlit Path, which, yes, I know is a mature scent for a youngster. But I, I, I was like a closeted Moonlit Pather. I, that was not the path I wanted to go down. Like those, that wasn't a hot girl scent, but like I just, I liked, a, I liked something muskier. But yeah, if you were going to go all in on a gift set of lotion, shower gel, and bubble bath for your friend, I feel like it was going to set you back at least, I don't know, $40. And while that's not exactly the same as, like, what's a drunk elephant cream run you? Like 60 bucks? I don't even know. I have a travel size of the bronzy drops, and I actually do really like them. But um, this is a Glamour article. I think I saw Steph McNeil posted it today called Inside the Tween Obsession with Drunk Elephant Skincare. Children as young as eight and nine years old are begging parents to buy drunk elephant products, some costing upwards of $50. How did a millennial skincare brand become Gen Alpha's most viral gift? When Glamour editor, when Glamour executive editor Natasha Perlman received her nine-year-old daughter's Christmas list, it looked like it was a copy. It was copy and pasted from a beauty influencer's Amazon storefront. And the, at the top wasn't a specific product, but an entire skincare brand, Drunk Elephant. Other gifts included a beauty organizer, a facial roller, a Laneige lip-sleeving mask, and Sol de Janeiro Brazilian bum-bum cream. Okay, I don't even like that cream that much. I, it's fine. I don't, whatever. But it was Drunk Elephant that reigned supreme. She said it was four months ago when her daughter Rose, who's in fourth grade, started getting massively into skincare and makeup. I thought it was kind of funny at the beginning. Then it became about products you have to have. Drunk Elephant was the first brand she started talking about. She asked for specific products, including B Hydra Intensive Hydration Gel, Proteiny Polypeptide Cream, and B Goldie Bright Illuminating Drops. Why does a nine-year-old? What does a nine-year-old need with niacinamide? Is that even how you say it? Like I don't even know. This person's daughter's not allowed on TikTok or Instagram, but they go on YouTube, which is harder to regulate since the launch of its TikTok competitor, YouTube Shorts. That's interesting. I tried to ban adult YouTube, but I'm certain she finds it on YouTube Shorts. Oh, it's all these influencers that do makeup videos, but for children. It's starter makeup. Interesting, interesting. It's important to acknowledge that despite parents' best efforts, apps like TikTok and Instagram will always be accessible. 
There's older kids in her school with phones and Apple watches, play dates, older siblings. You may have set restrictions, but yeah, but when they're out of their house, it's out of your control. I mean, yeah, as a person that did a lot of media gymnastics to get the scoop. I do think some of the stuff can be harmful, but I also am like not convinced it's any more harmful than like the astringence I put on my face. I'm going to read some of your emails, then we'll bring this full circle and we're going to go back to age nine because I it's something I feel very strongly about that I think is a bigger part of the conversation worth having after these messages. You know, it'll never be lost on me when we have like bigger conversations about capitalism than I am selling you things with ads, but you know, that's how media is funded. And uh, for better or for worse, that's the only way I can fund my job. But that's why I talk about things I actually use. And I have a lot of long-term partners because I want you guys to know that these are actually things that are part of my routine that I genuinely love. For example, Osea. The thing is, I still love products. Like I still love body care and self-care and some skincare stuff because there are problems I do want fixed. Like dry skin is like a big one for me. And that's why I'll never stop singing the praises of Osea. If you're looking for something clean and sustainable, in Osea's case, it's also vegan, that's genuinely moisturizing and glowing and just makes my skin feel healthier. Osea's Andaria algae products are so good, but their body butter specifically for like winter is pretty much unmatched. This is actually what I've been taking with me on the road because it's a little bit more, feels a little bit more like portable than the oil. But it's just, it's the smoothest body butter that has clinically proven results. I know that so many bloggers say things are buttery soft, but this is like body buttery soft in ways that are it's just luxurious and thick. And it absorbs really fast, which I find interesting. So it's not greasy and it feels fantastic and you can get dressed immediately and just stay hydrated. And the body butter, I think part of the key to its success is it's made with ingredients normally reserved for your face, like Andaria seaweed and ceramides. And it transforms dry, crepey skin into soft, smooth, and supple skin. I just think we spend a lot of time on like face skincare, which is good. But also, I don't know. I feel like more often than not, the thing I need help with and that's uncomfortable and dry is the skin on the rest of my body. And the Andaria Algae Body Butter can help your skin have a healthy glow every day. And if, in case you aren't familiar, Osea's clean, seaweed-based approach to skin and body care. Safe for your skin, safe for the planet, clean, vegan, cruelty-free, climate-neutral certified. So you don't have to choose between your values and your best skin. So start the new year fresh with clean vegan skincare and body care from Osea. And right now we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code BETHEREIN5 at oseamalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to oseamalibu.com and use code BETHEREIN5 for 10% off. This one says, I'm a follower, stay-at-home mom, and part-time Sephora employee. Ages 9 to 13 come into my store for Drunk Elephant Glow Recipe and Sol de Janeiro. These poor parents and grandparents at Christmas time came in just getting their minds blown at the prices and items the girls were requesting. It also sucks to not have stock for them because it has to be those brands. No, your 9-year-old does not need retinol. I was, I was a broken record. They also are very hard customers to interact with. The 13 to 18-year-olds we have a hard time with too, but especially for shoplifting. They have oversized hoodies or Lululemon shopping bags and steal hundreds of makeup and skincare. Sephora and Ultra Reddit are a great resource for this topic because it's just employees complaining. Anyways, I'm here to chat. Just type this quick while I'm cooking dinner. Interesting. I hate the shoplifting. This one says, as a mother of a 10-year-old, I feel many ways about this. On the one hand, these girls are just imitating what they see. My 10-year-old definitely does not know what drunk elephant is. I'm not even sure she knows what a Stanley Cup is. But I know girls in her grade that have them. 
she isn't on any kind of social media and her friends at school are obviously not into it. Blaming the parents feels so trite. But if you're normalizing these things or letting social media normalize them, it's only natural they will want them too. My daughter wants to start washing her face regularly and I'm just going to go to Target and buy her Elf or maybe La Roche-Posay as a splurge because that's what I use. On the other hand, we were all into dumb shit that was way too mature for us when we were preteens. The only difference is that we couldn't put it on the internet for everyone to critique, right? This whole discourse seems a lot like the older generations being aghast at kids these days when really kids aren't all that different these days. Totally. I also do think like, We've heard from a lot of people in our generation who can kind of pinpoint, like, obviously, diet culture was very prevalent in so many spaces, independent of parenting, it could still affect you. I've heard from several friends who have, quote unquote, almond moms, if you will, that they kind of feel indoctrinated in a sense with a level of diet culture um, habits that were hard to shake if they have ever. And I do think like it's probably it's going to be similar if you're a glazed donut mom. Like if your kid is watching you do a 10 step skincare routine like twice daily and obsessing over your skin barrier and snailing and whatever the hell else you're doing, like slugging, snailing. Ew, uh, that's not the right term. I don't slug, obviously. Which like more power to you. Do what, do what you like, like what you do. But like if you're doing that in front of your kid and talking about it a lot, they'll probably absorb it. Kind of like how I still use Estee Lauder products because my mom did. But it's like almost cute to me of like a family legacy of she likes these things and so I like these things and they smell like her and I don't know. This one says, I'm a millennial who has been working as a middle school counselor for the last eight years. My big observations on skincare is that the level of intense acne is way down. There is a kid here or there, but overall it is nothing compared to what our generation dealt with. And I very much think it's because these kids are investing their time, energy, and parents' money into way better products, and there's clean ingredients and variety. For us, it was Accutane, Proactive, and Cet- Is it Cetaphil or Cetaphil? I think they still use Ceta or Cetaphil in CeraVe. Um, the other thing I will say is that we are a generation that grew up with heavy influence from magazines in the worst kind of way, and from shows like Baywatch or how all the high school kids in movies were actual grown-ups. That was rough. But now, welcome to TikTok, Instagram, etc., and it's so, so much worse. Constant bombardment of pretty little things, pretty little aesthetics and routines. It is their entire personalities. Our generation was all about the Uggs and North Face jackets. This one is all about the skincare and makeup. The kids are way more grown up than we were, and it can be hard to watch. But on the flip side, sometimes I think they are a lot more confident than we ever were, so that's a positive. But there is still a ton of angst, anxiety, and perfectionism to project themselves in a certain way online. These girls would die if they ever saw the Facebook wall videos that Facebook is always making me relive with on this day memories. And it's probably because I spend all day with them anyway, but I don't mind any teens or tweens in public spaces. But I can see how they might be terrifying to encounter in the wild without exposure therapy. Hi, Kate. Mom of a three-year-old daughter, so not quite at the Sephora stage yet, though she does love putting on my makeup. Well, there are troubling aspects of the products geared toward young girls, like anti-aging products on barely-aged skin. I feel like a lot of the backlash follows the same trend of hating on things that young girls are interested in. Tween slash teens are in Sephora because their mom, sister, friend, sister shops there and they want to be grown up too. How dare they want these it girl products? They're too young. Meanwhile, I remember distinctively being that age and giggling my way through a Victoria's Secret five for $25 bin. Is there really that big of a difference between the two events? I also strongly disagree. Oh, I also, I, was, I just got nervous. <laughs> I also strongly agree. With your suggestion that this is related to the laws of malls slash rules surrounding the historically teen-centered gathering places. Since becoming a mom, I have realized how unfriendly a lot of spaces are to children and families. 
This extends to teens where there appears to be so much outright hostility. And sure, teens can be difficult to deal with, but do my fellow millennials not remember what adults were saying about us when we were teens? It just feels like a different flavor of the same faux outrage about how bad this next generation is. Hi, Kate. I'm also on tweens and Sephora TikTok and wanted to weigh in with my own confused thoughts on this topic. I specifically remember being 13 years old, having a facial for the first time, and the esthetician telling me it's never too soon soon to start thinking about aging that's so dark. This makes me so angry to think about now, but I also started wearing sunscreen on my face daily in middle school and am virtually wrinkle-free at 29. I also credit coming of age in the Twilight era for saving me from the tanning obsession of the early 2000s. Jealous. I, I mean, I came of age with Twilight. I found vampires allergic to the sun after I found Sun Salon. Uh, where I went in and lied about my age, uh, I believe gave them my social security number, and they did send a collections agency years later after me. I recently reconnected with one of my middle school teachers, and one of the main things she remembered about me was not what a great student I was, but that I was a sunscreen evangelist to my fellow middle school girls. (laughs) You're welcome. All this to say is that I still have such a complicated relationship with beauty and skincare. It's so difficult to draw the line between self-care and self-scrutiny. And it makes me sad to think of how few years we get as girls before we start looking in the mirror with such a critical eye. Sincerely, VIB since 2009. Guys, I lost my rouge status this year. (laughs) So sad. But I was pregnant and had a kid. And it's kind of almost comedically follows the let yourself go tropes. But as I told you guys in an episode a while back, the flip side of that, of letting yourself go, was like, yeah, I I let myself go be a human woman. Uh, without a constant quest for self-improvement, because I simply didn't have time. Was it liberating? Was it troubling? Am I now paying for it while I prepare to be on camera for things and feel like I'm consumed with fear that the people that look good on TV have nice chompers, you know, veneers? And I, you know, dare I say, will look like a normal woman with pores, with teeth that are slowly getting more crooked by the day because every night I'm torn between a light headache in the temples and maintaining, you know, my orthodontic work. And I never feel like wearing my retainer. Um, it's hard being me. <laughs> you know, guys, I can't get this across enough. I am a confident 36-year-old woman who's very proud of my career and my life. I am now a mother. I'm a lot of things and I'm, that I'm very proud of. But did I also go get neck Botox last Friday? Yes, yes, I did. We can be both. And I don't need to unpack that for you or justify that for you. I just wanted to come clean and say that um, beauty standards do us dirty. And I think we've come so far and we shouldn't feel like we have to do anything for anybody else. But I fear that sometimes these standards and this quest for looking a certain way is just so embedded into into my nature. It, it was such an indoctrination rather than a choice. I easily regress to a version of myself that endlessly wants to self-improve, to fit in, that endlessly picks apart the things I don't like about myself and my face. And anytime I see myself on camera, it's exacerbated. And it's like, you know what? What are you going to do? In my book, I compare like beauty and body standards to an MLM because I think it's like a similar thing where we all are oppressed from the impossibility of the moving target of what success looks like paired with the fact that we all perpetrate them by endlessly trying to chase them. And I try to make the ultimate point that I'll just read from it. 
I see myself as both a perpetrator and a victim of the things that motivated me at the time, like diet culture, narrow beauty standards, and peddling the party girl dream to make everyone want to join my proverbial team. I try to see it both ways, because when we criticize social media, we're quick to blame the highlight reel or the women showing their bodies or their fitness routines or what they eat in a day, just like we're quick to blame the women who peddle wet leggings with holes in them or predatory essential oils who were told it was the secret to changing their lives. But we're pointing to symptoms, not at all the root causes. Vulnerable people fall for systems that keep them oppressed, and they may sell the pink Cadillac, but they were never the ones behind the wheel. If clothing manufacturers or retailers or brands or skincare and makeup companies or magazines or if any of these places could create lasting positive effects on our self-esteem, it's bad for business. The more unworthy we think we are, the more flaws we'll believe we have, the more money we'll spend on things that will fix us. I believe that this is why in 2005 Coldplay came out with the song Fix You because we were all looking for the girl with the broken smile and then we realized we were looking in a mirror and she was us and we felt the need to be fixed. I mean, I think of myself having spent an entire hostess paycheck on a Clinique three-step routine and, you know, walking out of the local Macy's or Hex, feeling hopeful about the new me that was just around the corner. I mean, it's inspiring. When you lose something you cannot replace, like your black North Face Denali at a bar when you put your jacket down because everyone's jacket's the same. So you just start raw dogging it and not wearing jackets out in the Southwest Mountain, Virginia winter, playing fast and loose with a head cold, dealing with the sad reality that to be freezing cold is a small price to pay for looking hot. I remember that feeling of being nine or 10 and being in a dressing room and never having pant legs fit, which I know is not the same experience as like being discriminated against for your body type. But like, I, I have like a weird relationship with the inseam of stuff because of being made fun of for pants, like always looking like high waters. And so I couldn't, there weren't like longs back then. And yeah, anyways, that's not important. I wasn't like oppressed, but I just, re- I, I just remember the feeling of when something didn't fit or if you couldn't afford something or you didn't have access to something and it would compromise your ability to fit in. I I relate to that feeling and I relate to that like angst and, and feelings of feeling of urgency like god, I don't know how to overhaul my looks, my personality, these things I can't change about myself. The quickest way to move through the world a little bit more easily is to have my reputation precede me by attaching myself to brands and status symbols that other people have so I can kind of cosplay this cool factor before my instincts catch up. And I do think it's interesting how at that age, when maybe you have an allowance or your you know, parents start buying you things and you're allowed to have access to like more products, independent of like the timing of when you're growing up, independent of generation, it's not new that young women feel the necessity to self-improve. And when you're young, it's mostly due to the desire to fit in. And an easier way to do that than to change who you are is to buy stuff that will make you cool by default. It's a lot lower effort, but higher price point. And due to that, people are going to be interested in brands and in products and in consumer goods that contribute to their social capital. And from a very young age, by default, you're kind of conditioned to seek power and consumption, whether you realize it or not, and whether we parent our kids a certain way or not. And unless you're like, welcome to Plathville, 
population nine kids who are poorly equipped for the world. I don't really know how you avoid that other than trying to find some semblance of balance. Because I did it too. And yeah, some days, I mean, most days, I'm like, fuck the patriarchy. Keychain on the ground. Other days, I'm skipping down. You know, like, sometimes when we're just, like, trying to exist, it's like this weird thing of, like, it's so important to, like, do the right thing and fight for the cause and, you know, not get uh, caught up in you know, the perpetuation of the symptoms. But at the same time, it's like, well, if a form of resistance is to not constantly self-improve, sometimes it feels like so hard to overhaul our instincts that we're not even responsible for having because we're kind of conditioned to seek power through consumption in this way. And I don't know, like, yeah, obviously best case scenario was to not live in a world where I'm normalizing a young female's response to a world that easily breaks down her confidence. By saying, I mean, con- yeah, they're going to consume. It is what it is. I don't love it is what it is. But I guess what I'm saying is I don't have the answers. I don't I don't know how and when it will be demo day for these bigger systems. And I, I want to contribute to their long-term dismantling. But minute to minute, hour to hour, sometimes you just want to enjoy yourself. <laughs> I never know how to reconcile these feelings. And my point is not to say that it's right. My point is to say that I understand it because I did it too. I, since, I mean, I feel like I keep reading excerpts, but like, and I'm not trying to tease, but like, I really, I'm I'm just excited that these conversations are happening because this is a lot of what I talk about is kind of like this feeling of realize, like looking back on your life and realizing like you weirdly always internalize these feelings of thinking of yourself as before. And whether it was like, you know, makeover obsessed America or, you know, what not to wear or the princess diaries or she's all that or literally everything, you know, Devil Wears Prada, like everything's about this like big epic makeover. And like, I think I've just always believed that that was in store for me. And I said, the height of 90s makeover obsessed America, there was hope for everyone and all the beautiful things and people at the mall made me dream of my potential. However, thinking about the mall serving as a linoleum castle of self-improvement through consumption is precisely why I can't quite figure out if I honor these memories or if I too was inappropriately programmed like Teen Talk Barbie. If I may generalize, pursuing status or material things was a shallow quest, but in practice it was more of a side effect of seeking social acceptance for survival, which I think is a very millennial trait, and now Gen Alpha. I'm actually about to make a bad hypothesis. Different currencies hold value within and across generations, and in my experience, uniqueness was not valued when I was growing up the way it is now. As I mentioned in the introduction, one trait I've observed about Gen Z online is their celebration and prioritization of identity and individuality, which I applaud. We're now in the era of the personal brand. But before we could curate personal brands, we just had name brands. And as weird as it sounds, a huge-ass moose or a Vera Bradley hanging loose from my arm felt like armor in a sense. But I appreciate the memories. I always tell my parents the material things I wanted and never got didn't make me feel like I missed out but lucked out in a way, because that's why I remember them well enough to articulate it here. Longing implies a sense of absence, but for me, it was mental real estate that I used for dreaming of the new me. Well, I find this mentality exhausting and now see how capitalism subsists off of convincing you the new you is just around the corner. At the time, I really believed it was. To this day, it's still nice to believe sometimes. Hi, Kate. I have thoughts for the Sephora 10-year-old discourse. I feel similarly, similarly to how you said on stories that the tweens need somewhere to go. 
And I feel like for them, they don't have that. I have such fond memories of the mall in middle school. It was the one place to be, I-Y-K-Y-K. I love girly things, and I love that the girls can explore girly things in Sephora. What I find troubling is not so much the makeup aspect with the skincare, especially with the drunk elephant being so huge with the young demographic. It scares me to think that a 12-year-old thinks they need to buy vitamin C Firmafresh serum when their skin could not be more Firmafresh if it tried. I also think when it dips into retinol-based products, I feel like using that strong of skincare, that young, without any need for it, could end up being damaging, IDK. As a millennial, I also feel a twang of jealousy in the boomer and me comes out of we literally scrubbed the skin off our faces with clean and clear wake-up beads and stripped our faces with essentially peroxide wipes and you guys get the good stuff. <laughs> we spent our high school years finding whatever godforsaken 20-year-old alcohol hidden in our parents' cabinets, siphoned it into water bottles, filled said liquor bottle up with water to replace, and mixed it with like orange soda and you guys get to drink White Claws and Trulies as your forehead to booze. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I'm trying, I want to, usually I spend so much time with my stupid commentary, I don't get through enough of your opinions and I want to get through more of your opinions, so put a pin in that. Hey Kate, I already reserved the photo package Anaheim ticket. Maybe you can give me one of those live touch backgrounds where it has the diagonal lens, lines of the lasers. Okay, can I just say, every venue, like, I, I kind of just show up. I'm the talent. This is all like planned by so many people besides me because it involves a publisher and agents and like, this is it's a very cool thing to have something like planned around my book that isn't so DIY on my behalf. But I'd be lying if I said that I felt completely comfortable with all of like, <laughs> I mean, I'm a normal person. And even the idea of paying to meet me, I feel so guilty about. And I'll probably try to individually Venmo you. But the reality is to do like if I want to include as many people as possible in the shows to do like meet and greets and photos and like signings, you have to like eliminate that down to a lesser number of tickets. So the way you do that is like offsetting it with a higher price point. And it also pays the staff to stay longer. But when I, I don't have control over the verbiage. So like when Caroline Moss was like, I bought the photo package. I'm like, photo package? This is why I'm having anxiety about my appearance. And I'm sorry if your photo isn't good, but I'll do my best. I'll, I'll hand on hip. I'll sorority squat. I'll tilt my chin. I'll do all of the cringy millennial poses because Lord knows I'm not cool enough to smile with my mouth closed like a blogger. Um, but I love you guys who bought these. It means the world to me. I just wanted to tell you that, like, if you kind of were like, yikes, you know, think highly of yourself much, photo package, what is this? Yeah, Life Touch Picture Day. I, too, had the same response. <laughs> I mean, I would love it if you bought them. Anyway, love you. Regarding teens, tweens, and Sephora, I say let them take a chance, make a change, and break away from their parents at the mall and go to Sephora. I didn't need Sephora slash Ulta to make mistakes like tweezing eyebrows into oblivion using a whole bottle of sun in or bad eyeshadow, or not using sunscreen, going to a tanning bed, etc. Having this access to Sephora is allowing the next generation access to products like Actives that can peel off a layer of skin or give them a red face for a few days because they didn't do a sample patch. If it's products that aren't doing lasting harm, I don't have a problem with it. Though I don't think my eyebrows ever fully recovered from the great tweeze of O2. Same. Dash is a photo of me in 2002 with my friend on her family trip to the Outer Banks. Complete with horrible beach tan, blonde highlights, I'm the one in blue, my eyebrows are horrifyingly tiny. I think this was the trip my friend didn't put sunscreen on the back of her legs the last day and got so burnt just before the eight-hour car ride back to Maryland. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you in Anaheim. I think we should recreate this photo. And I had the same experience. Thank you for sharing. I mean, we're talking about skincare. I actually feel a little burdened by a lot of, like, the face serums and stuff. And I was starting to feel like a bit of an MLM hun with a lot of inventory where I, like, have a bunch of partially used products I felt I had to buy into to achieve some outcome I'll never really gain. And that's why I was actually very interested in this product from Ritual because I've worked with them for so long and I trust them. And they have this product called Hyacera that's, like, daily anti-aging support from within 
And it's a supplement that helps minimize like fine lines to hydrate skin from the inside out, which I think is interesting. And hyaluronic acid naturally occurs in our skin, but it decreases, you know, gradually as we age. That's why the skin becomes thinner, drier, more prone to fine lines. And obviously, we love to, we love to age. We could only be so lucky. But luck is like not on my side when it comes to like general hydration and skin plumpness. And Ritual's Hyacera supplement helps hydrate the skin from within. And a clinical study done by an independent research lab, Ceratique, which is one of the ingredients in Hyacera, proved to help reduce wrinkles and fine lines in 90 days. And another study by the supplier, High Best, significantly, significantly improved skin luster and suppleness compared with the baseline with daily use. And it has like a vanilla scent, which I'm just a general fan of. But yeah, those are their two clinically proven ingredients, and it's been tested and validated by third party for allergens, microbes, heavy metals, and works with world-class certification bodies to validate their products. And this is why I was even interested in this, because I hadn't really heard like the skincare from within angle, but Ritual has a completely transparent supply chain, and they do such rigorous testing when they don't have to in this very unregulated category. And they just have industry-leading sustainability standards, among other things. And I think that they're a really great female-founded B Corp, and they hold themselves accountable to their company's financial health, but the health of the people taking their supplement and the planet. I continue to be impressed with their products. So if you want to reduce fine lines, hydrate skin from within, without compromising on clean science, Hyacera from Ritual is a skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 40% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash be there in five. This offer is only available through January 31st. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash be there in five for 40% off. Longtime listener, first time caller. No one wants to say no anymore. I have a 22, 19, and 15-year-old. The older two are boys, and I was known as a strict mom throughout high school because they would get grounded for breaking rules, stay out past curfew. My kids are one of the few who had a curfew, underage drinking, bad grades, etc. If I heard one more time, if they are going to drink, I would rather them do it at my house. I was going to lose my mind. It's against the law, period. 17-year-old boys should not be making major decisions because they don't have the emotional maturity to, to do so. My daughter is now in high school, and it's a whole new set of not wanting to say no crowd. She has friends whose parents are almost pushing these girls into growing up faster. It's like they want to relive their youth or something. I grew up in an upper-middle-class upper neighborhood, and we all wore Revlon lipstick, coffee bean forever, and shopped at the mall. Our parents were not letting us buy expensive skincare at 13 or $100 leggings at 14. All of my daughter's friends had smartphones by 7th grade with free reign over their social media. I worry that we are putting our kids in situations they can't handle and having them grow up too fast. Instead of just homecoming and prom in high school, now we have middle school homecoming where sixth graders are wearing cocktail dresses. It's too much. I know I sound like I am a million years old and no fun, but I have my kids young and unfortunately for them, remember high school antics all too well. Thank you for sharing. It's hard for me to comment on how people parent, but I value everybody's uh, perspective. And I think there's just such a fine line between, yeah, that that parent and friend dynamic that I think everyone struggles with, um, where your kids have the emotional maturity and like ability to verbalize how mad they are at you and how much they dislike your rules, making you feel bad or like you're doing something wrong, but like paired with your emotional maturity and perspective to know that like there are certain circumstances where discipline may hurt their feelings and in turn they may hurt you but ultimately it's better for them in the long run yeah I don't know how I would navigate these things yet I think it's good to talk about it and that a lot of people struggle with it because I I too notice with age I get a little bit more I don't want to say narky I'm already narky I just yeah millennials straddle two worlds we grew up 
in a world with more traditional values and it was different than the one that greeted us when we became adults. And I think it is a bit confusing for millennial parents to be to understand the value of our more disconnected childhoods and to know how to give that to young people when there are so many options and when their peers are experiencing such access to all of these things that if they don't, you know, they're the outlier. Um, and I think it's hard for us to know the long-term implications because we came of age, you know, with the most seismic invention of the 21st century, the, the internet. And we were the first to create and thus define what it meant to have like an online personality. But we got stair-stepped into this, you know, in the form of AOL Instant Messenger to Facebook and MySpace and then Instagram and Instagram didn't even have stories till what, 2016, 2017? And then TikTok just changed the game. It's so different being like in elementary school, being like a kid kid and being around other kids that have access to this stuff and feeling left out because you don't and then you don't know what to do as a parent. And we only know the implications of this type of access through the lens of like older teens because it wasn't even an option when we were younger. But I also can relate to the feeling of desperation and longing when my parents kept me from something that my friends were allowed to do. I'm not I don't have the answers at all. I actually think this is really, really challenging. And I think that maybe this is something as millennial parents, we should, you know, all be talking about more because it, the trouble is too, like you can parent the way you want. But when it's to so disproportionate from how your child's peers are parenting, that becomes their barometer for how, you know, strict or fair or valid it is. And it would drive me crazy if it's, I mean, like, you know, high school kids, people are going to experiment. I actually was a little bit glad I experimented with drinking before I went to college because I didn't, I didn't, it's almost like I had controlled experiences with at-risk behavior when we had to sneak around, like, the law and in parents' houses. Whereas in college, there's so much freedom and you're just being like bused to frat houses and nobody knows you and looks out for you. And I feel like I watched a lot of people that never drank in high school, like go too crazy blackout and like shit got scary. But I already like knew my limits when I was a freshman in college. And I like knew better than to do make some mistakes that I actually think the consequences would have been more severe in college. Anyway, I'm not arguing for teen drinking. As we know from Jaquan, teen drinking is very bad. But I have a lot of mixed feelings on this. And I completely understand that if especially if I had like a younger high school student somebody was like if they're gonna drink I'd rather do it in the house a la Mean Girls I'd be like what <laughs> we lost our goddamn mind like let's be normal and have kids do things behind our backs um but anyway I don't know how to feel I don't know how to parent I have a hard enough time you know Teddy's nose will be stuffed and I'm like this child needs to breathe but he gets so mad at me when I suck his snot I feel horrible and I want to cry these are not good signs for me I really struggle when I can tell my kid is just uncomfortable to do something I'm doing even though I know it's for his benefit I cannot even imagine what this looks like handling teenagers and I love you and I salute all of you who are out there trying to do your best um and I obviously you can't come to this podcast for sage parenting advice but what you can come here for is uh solidarity and validation that this is difficult and I don't think anybody's doing it perfectly and while I'm always kind of operating in the gray as you know I can see the upsides and downsides to things. I, I do think that the there, there's something's important about exploring our uncertainty. Like even if we don't have a conclusion, I think looking into like root causes and thinking about how this ties to our girlhood and these broader implications of, 
yeah, sure. Not just like the cell regeneration on our face, but like what this actually is saying about young girls' confidence. And like, I think sometimes those broader conversations are more important than like, should we be limiting the age of people who are allowed in a Sephora, you know? Anyway, let me go to the next email. Hi, Kate. I have so many thoughts. As a lover of makeup and skincare and a mother of three daughters, 10, 7, and 4, I feel like I'm highly experienced. My 10-year-old is interested in the bare minimum. She's entering her tween years with minimalistic skincare, beauty, aka just cleaning her face, and may ask for a special manicure before vacation or holidays. She may not stay that way, but I'll take it. I'll take this stage. My 7-year-old is obsessed with skincare and makeup. The other day, I asked her if it's things she's seen on her iPad or from me. She told me she just loves taking care of her skin and is more influenced by me than anyone she's seen on YouTube. Kind of made me sigh and also a good reminder that I guess I am the number one influencer in her life. With that being said, I am someone who loves to try things more on the makeup side. Skincare, thanks to my dermatologist, I've gotten a solid routine that is usually more, no more than five steps. The current state also made me think of my own obsession. Yes, teen magazine culture likely influenced me to some degree. I honestly think about my grandmothers who loved Clinique and Dior. I couldn't wait to be able to buy my own. I also grew up knowing women selling Mary Kay and Avon, aka the makeup ladies. Going to events with my mom were special memories. I may have walked away with a bag of samples and moments with, my, with mom that I cherish. So now looking at my own daughters and our special times, we actually just had one. A lovely trip to Sephora and Ulta in search of drunk elephant Goldie Drops. It was a success and some SPF was also bought. I'm teaching my girls that while they don't need all the extras, a good moisturizer, cleanser, and SPF will be worth it. For now, if this is something we can do together, I hope they will remember these moments and choose items that make sense for their skin types and personal preferences. I wish there was less focus on mocking the tweens and the parents themselves. We're all trying to do our best, and if I'm participating in enabling younger skincare applications, at least I'm doing it from the lens of I've lived and learned and say no to tanning always or that 12-step skincare routine will not pay off. Also, did I forget my four-year-old? I'm afraid we are at the pink and purple eyeshadow stage every day. This currently is not a battle I'm picking. <laughs> Thanks for reading. Oh my gosh, that was, that was great. Thank you. That's some really helpful perspective. I have a nine-year-old daughter who is skincare obsessed and requesting visits to Sephora. I'm also appalled and infuriated at the TikTok narrative right now with Gen Z creators bullying these children over their shopping at these stores. I've also seen how in a matter of hours this past weekend, other teens have stopped going to the drunk elephant section, according to TikTok, because it's now cringe and they don't want to be viewed as a tween. Wait, that's an interesting layer to this I hadn't considered. Wow, 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 wow. Wow, 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 wow. This one says such a great topic. Seems there are deep generational divides. Some thoughts. Age of allowing. My mother, Boomer, was not allowed to wear makeup until she was 16. Also not allowed to get her ears pierced until she was a teenager. So rather than hold me back, she allowed me to wear makeup when I expressed interest around 13, 14. My pursuit of makeup was less about pizzazz and more about acne coverage. My mom personally never wore foundation. Loves to tell people she never had a pimple in her life. That was so far from the truth for me, so I was in the dark on selecting color, product type, application, etc. And honestly, where were girls learning these things? Lots of drugstore makeup ads in our Cosmo Girls. Maybe if you were lucky and invited to a Merle Norman makeover birthday party. You know what's funny? Earlier I was telling you about the CVS that was in the same shopping center as the Zero subs and the video time and stuff. There was also a Merle Norman there, but I like ne I've never even been inside. It was too high end. When I see the makeup tutorials of today on YouTube TikTok, I am excited for the youth of today to have such guidance without the spectacle of a mall makeup counter visit. I ended up with such bad technique that was once called cake face. You're so right. That's so true. Because that's 100% where we all caught our technique. And I would always come from there looking like I had black eyes. Like mall makeup counters in random suburb USA, I really thought they were like, you know, makeup by Mario. 
I think it was more, I don't know, Clown Face by Jessica H. And I really didn't make this connection before, but I've always loved makeup. And like, I wondered why I didn't wear that much in high school and college. But like as an adult, it's, cosmetic products are like my favorite hobby. And I think that, I mean, I wore like eyeliner, mascara, concealer, and like a dunk take of bronzer, but I didn't have any skills. Like I, now I'm like, oh, I, I really did, had no means of learning technique. And then in the 2010s, when we had beauty vloggers doing YouTube tutorials, I was obsessed. I, like, I genuinely owe them a lot. They like taught me everything I know. Because sometimes the skills, you know, no offense uh, to your Jessica H's at Clinique Macy's, Virginia Center Commons, or, you know, makeup done by, you know, a company called like Bridal by Becca in Random Town, USA. It's not that they don't have skills. It's that I don't think their job is to necessarily play to your features. They're there to get a job done. Uh, not really do a bespoke look. And I think they maybe just do the same face on everyone. And I always thought I looked bad with a lot of makeup on. Like anytime I had my eye makeup done, for most of my life, I like hated it. But maybe I just looked bad with bad makeup on. <laughs> Imagine that. Anyway, back to your email. I ended a cake face. Oh, yeah. Definitely no contour, if even blush. And I neglected my eyebrows till well into my 20s. Product quality and access. But what would we have used to contour anyway? Drugstore makeup was everything in our day. Foundation was either pressed powder with an icky sponge applicator or heavy liquid slash mousse. We had Wet n Wild for eyeliner. Covergold had the best mascara or that watermelon colored Maybelline number that was always voted number one in magazines. Waterproof was a must for pool parties. If there was bronzer to be bought, I feel like we used it as all over color to match our tanning bed tans. Yeah, exactly. I think I used Wet n Wild everything. Uh, and that, And then like the Maybelline pink Great Lash mascara. Clinique was considered chic but expensive, and any other department store brands felt stuffy, old lady, possibly couldn't even afford it if we were interested. I haven't even touched on the skincare of it all. Um, astringents? Why? Fire. All this to say, accessibility has changed dramatically, and we were really flying blind. You're so right. On the one hand, I'm excited we've accepted makeup as self-expression. Ew, remember the guys who would be like, I only like girls who don't wear makeup? Uh, yeah, they still exist. But on the other hand, I likewise worry that the popularity of skincare routines for tweens will make them more insecure around the natural process of aging in the long run. Time will tell. Thanks for writing. This one says, oh, this person's seen me in Anaheim too. I was mentioning your Instagram story about kids and tweens and makeup to my husband because we've been talking recently about this. My niece is 11 and all she wanted for Christmas was a Sephora gift card. I was surprised that she was so grown up now and I asked her mom, oh, does she want to get like fun glittery lip gloss or eyeshadow? How fun? Well, I'm officially old over here because my sister-in-law says, oh no, she wants skincare. That's so interesting. My inner millennial child immediately reacts with what? Why would she spend her money on that? Surely her money could be better spent on butterfly clips or long glitter or Sanrio. But no, she wanted skincare products. I couldn't believe that an 11-year-old would want to spend her limited cash flow on skincare. But even more shocking is to hear that my husband told me a story my husband told me this week. He was at my daughter's soccer practice talking with the other dads. The girls on the team were six, first graders. While my daughter asked for toys and sports stuff for Christmas, apparently... His daughter asked for all makeup. That's all she wanted. She's six. Am I older? Is that so young to only want that for Christmas? No toys or games? I love make makeup, but I definitely am super surprised by how early kids are getting into actual legit makeup now. And I also feel like I should invest more in skincare if my 11-year-old niece is spending more money on her skin than I am. I agree that six is too young. Um, That's not tween. That's that's a baby child. Uh, And my like my mom's parenting philosophy is all about pacing yourself. And I appreciated this because it wasn't like 
you know, there was a lot of stuff I couldn't do. But like, I think for stuff where I just wanted to grow up too fast, you would always be like, yeah, that's stuff you can do, but let's pace ourselves. And then like, you can get your ears pierced at this age or get a stereo at this age. And I kind of like that because it made me look forward to the age I would turn when I would get to do fun stuff. And then it would be like a big deal, rite of passage. And I don't know. I absolutely don't think it should be a free for all. And six, I think is um, absolutely too young. Uh, I'm very forgiving and open to like, you know, the idea of exploration and play and, and girlhood. But like, yeah, I, I I mean, you can get them like kid cosmetics, but no, I would never be buying them like, you know, a, a Merit blush balm and an, uh, you know, Pat McGrath eyeshadow palette. <laughs> it says, I have three and five-year-old girls who are in dance and got to be my flower girls. They've been professionally made up and mom has done it too. I take my five-year-old with me to Sephora and she has her own blush and teeny naked eye palette that she picked out. The early mom's makeup and they live in my drawer, but on special occasions, she gets to be made up. I like the bonding moment of us getting ready together in the morning and taking pride in how we present ourselves. My mom never took that seriously, so I never did either. And I always had such an inferiority complex with the other girls who knew how to do all the girly things. I really didn't know what I was doing with my hair until my 30s and still cannot with most makeup. I'm trying to encourage that portion of it, hopefully, with turning her into a Sephora tween, without turning her into a Sephora tween. Thankful that her only access to Sephora is standalone city stores. I haven't seen this at all in person. See, okay, but I like that approach. I think that's really sweet. I I don't think kids that age need like full caboodles, but I think that that's like a really sweet um, bonding moment and ritualistic thing you do together. And like, I am all for that in a managed environment. I love that. Okay, this looks, this email seems to be a lot of intel or background about Drunk Elephant. I don't know a lot about them. So this reflects the experience of my audience and is an opinion for the purposes of commentary education research and entertainment i always get nervous uh when i read other people's reviews um but i'm very grateful for this deep dive okay let's get into this kate while i'm either a 10 year old or a mom i do have a specific take on the current sephora discussion as it pertains to drunk elephant i've per personally witnessed a lot of the behavior people have talked about online like getting trampled in sephora by unsupervised tweens with no visible floors while I agree with it being at least somewhat in the parents' responsibility to make sure their kids aren't using things that will hurt them, particularly if they are giving their kids their credit cards to purchase items, I think the fact that the brand the tweens are asking for is Drunk Elephant is a perfect storm for a disaster. Drunk Elephant was founded by Tiffany Masterson, a classic Texas girl boss in the same vein as Glossier's Emily Weiss and Gwyneth from Goop. Part of the ethos of the brand was that it was biocompatible and free from the suspicious six, which she states are at the root of almost every skin issue. One, essential oils. Two, drying alcohols. Three, silicones. Four, chemical sunscreen. Five, fragrance slash dye. Six, sodium lauryl sulfate. While there are plenty of pros and cons to these ingredients, Drunk Elephant takes a very dogmatic approach and skews more toward blanket statements that are black and white. That they are black and white, just bad. This is a helpful argument from a well-known cosmetic chemist explaining a little more of the nuance. It's called Drunk Elephant Skincare Review, Lab Muffin Beauty Science. The brand states that because their products do not contain the suspicious six, they are biocompatible and will mesh with your skin. Further, they claim because of the lack of these ingredients, all their products can be used together, specifically mixed into their skincare smoothies. Oh, that's why all those videos talk about a smoothie. See, I'm not in like the Drunk Elephant multiverse. Where Drunk Elephant has run into problems before is with this specific component of their ethos. Specifically, they launched their 1% retinol cream serum, a Passioni, Passioni, on December of 2018. They put a lot of marketing and social media encouraging customers that they could mix the retinol with other products and use it all over their face. 
On the brand's advice, many customers did this and experienced really severe irritation specifically around their eyes. Specifically, their research and development director, Nathan Rivas, took to his Instagram to talk to customers posting examples of his smoothies, like combining their 15% vitamin C serum that L'Oreal sued Drunk Elephant over because it was in violation of the patent rights of SkinCeuticals, renowned CE Ferulic Serum, with the retinol and their eye cream. Customers who tried these smoothies commented their experience and were told it was user error or their comments were simply deleted. My best friend bought the retinol and it absolutely destroyed her skin within a week. Red, flaky, inflamed, sore, all of it, even though she can use prescription tretinoin with no issues. Lost my spot. I don't know if you remember Caroline Hirons. Yeah, a popular skincare influencer and esthetician in the UK who went on an Instagram story series about discovery, what Kate finds, would have, could have, should have story series. Kate referred her to your deep dive and she said you two were her Venn diagram dreams come true. Wait, what? Cool. Caroline had previously worked with Drunk Elephant on sponsored content and had interviewed Tiffany on her YouTube. She posted the following article, Drunk Elephant A. Passioni, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, Passioni Retinol Cream, which expresses some slightly snarky frustrations with the retinol rollout. She was immediately blocked and blacklisted from Drunk Elephant for having a differing opinion. A few months later, popular skin influencer Hiram cut ties with the company for similar issues he experienced and observed. All this to say, Drunk Elephant has a history of being unconcerned with even their adult customers having adverse side effects from using their products exactly the way the brand recommends. Their behavior over the years has demonstrated that they have no intention of changing their marketing or education when they receive feedback on their cons- from their consumer and that if it didn't work for you, you did something wrong. Very mlm <laughs> They do not make reasonable efforts to educate customers about how their highly active products can do more harm than good if used inappropriately. To this day, there's no advisory on the retinol product page at Sephora other than limit in initial use to once or twice a week, gradually increasing frequency to every other night and then every night is tolerated. By contrast, you can look at Sephora's listing for Paula's Choice Retinol under How to Use, which discusses irritation and how customers should handle it. Over the years, customers have experienced similar issues with their most active products, namely TLC, Framboose, Glycolic Serum, the C Firma Vitamin C Serum, and the TLC Sucari Baby Facial. I was going to say I don't like Baby Fish, Baby Facial, the name, but I do like Baby Feet, so I'm a hypocrite. Drunk Elephant has been told for years by its customers that they experience painful side effects when used as directed and the brand simply does not care. They either respond that it's the customer's fault for using other products in a routine from a non-Drunk Elephant brand that contain the suspicious six or blame user error or delete comments altogether. They shut anyone down who tries to give constructive feedback, whether that be a customer or an influential influencer or medical professional. As such, I was not surprised that they embraced tweens using their products. Even when they did address it, it, they didn't say it could harm kids, only stay away from our more potent products that include actives and retinols. Their skin does not need these ingredients quite yet. Per their Instagram December 2023, we should not be shocked that a company with a history of refusing to take accountability for its recommendations doesn't care if kids use their products. Blah, blah, blah. Um, Drunk Elephant could easily have put out marketing and education content explaining exactly why their skin does not need it and what using it could do, but they didn't. Even so, the tweens are also obsessed with Glow Recipe, but you don't see any of the same issues in feedback because even though their packaging and marketing is arguably even more appealing to tweens, the brand isn't telling customers to combine all their products into smoothies. They put out education that teaches the customer about what the ingredients do and who they are for. Glow Recipe, like, smelled refreshing and watermelon watermelonly, but it didn't do much for me. Well, I agree that People, that is partially incumbent on the parents to monitor what their kids are doing. It's also incumbent on the brand to responsibly market and sell their products. Drunk Elephant refuses to do that. Instead, they put out holiday kits called Mama and Cub and their Littles that would appear to be for young skin, which contain all anti-aging peptides in their acid products. It's not unreasonable that a parent would look at these and assume they were safe for kids. I think it's 
helpful to think of the skincare like the Panera Charge Lemonade. Should parents have paid more attention to what's in it? Sure. But also Panera shouldn't have marketed it the way they did and left a fruity, fun, kid-appealing drink by the soft drinks for kids to drink as much as they want. There's fault on both sides. However, this is why Drunk Elephant is the perfect storm for this combination. Their products are bright and colorful and fun with cute names, which appeals to kids in a way that wouldn't raise red flags for parents, and their brand is perfectly at peace with that. Further, Drunk Elephant has a history of not addressing issues with their products, and they certainly aren't about to start now when they have a whole new generation of customers wanting their products. As a final note, Drunk Elephant even received criticism in summer 2020 with their response to the Black Lives Matter movement. They refused to release their diversity statistics in a bizarre statement. Further, one of Drunk Elephant's suspicious six is chemical sunscreen, which is almost impossible to use on non-white skin because of the white cast it leaves, even though they have a tinted version of their mineral sunscreen. It is nowhere near deep enough for most POC customers to use without a cast. While this, the beauty industry was discussing making sunscreens that worked for non-white customers with no cast, Drunk Elephant doubled down on mineral being the only safe option. They remained blind that it was another example of their privilege because mineral sunscreen worked for their skin tone. And instead of saying this works better for me, they claim that only sunscreen doesn't leave a cast. Sorry, I'm kind of skimming it. This is thorough. I appreciate you writing all this out. As long as Drunk Elephant is booming profits, they aren't going to change their approach, but customers will still have issues and reactions, and I just don't want 10-year-olds to burn their skin on Drunk Elephant products the way I did in the 2010s. I stopped using them in 2019 after the retinol controversy. It just wasn't a brand I wanted to give my money to. As a consumer, I think where we spend our dollars is the biggest statement we can make. Further, as I've gotten older, I just think their dogmatic approach to good, bad ingredients and saying you need to only use products from their line or you'll have a reaction is just not it. It lacks any wants to recognize that different things work for different people, and that doesn't mean their way is right and your way is wrong or vice versa. But as a brand, you can't be everything to everyone, and there are some customers who your products simply aren't suited for, and that's okay. I love the beauty community when it recognizes the nuance and discusses why there is room for brands with different approaches because skincare and makeup simply isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Wow. Thank you for all that. Um, I don't have a lot of experience with this brand. I didn't know any of that. Honestly, I didn't even really understand how popular it was until the past two weeks. Um, even though I'd seen younger girls on TikTok with the cylinder lotion that has like the kind of concave top mixing stuff, I didn't really understand what they were doing. Wow, I got to stay up with the times. But that was very informative. Thank you for sharing your experience and your research. Um, I agree that I think the most misguided, absurd thing you as a consumer could think, as well as a brand to even communicate, even though I know it's in their best interest, is that every single piece from one brand is going to be the best thing for your lineup. It's just unrealistic. You don't have only have clothes from one designer. I think that brands should expect that you're going to seek some diversification and, you know, your skin fringe, if you will. It's like we don't need everyone to do everything perfectly, but we do expect, you know, products with chemicals in them to do things safely and ethically. And I do think in uh, if there's overt marketing to children, this certainly is something to pay close attention to and be mindful of. And I'm sure you just ed educated a lot of parents out there. And I appreciate your input. We tweens in Sephora, are we all just to, this is a new email, are we all just more aware of it now that life is so online and since shopping has such an immediacy attached to it? And that's why it feels like a frantic shopping experience. There wasn't that same rush to buy something as quickly as possible before it sells out since we were getting, oh, that's a really good point. Since we were getting influenced on everything from monthly magazines or catalogs and not social media. And then in turn, we were only trying to influence those we knew, those mainly in our same physical location rather than strangers on the internet. I definitely was shopping at Sephora as a tween slash young teen. I vividly remember spending computers, spending computer class looking at the website with my friends instead of learning how to use Excel. 
and it was always the first stop on a trip to the mall. I had a skincare routine starting in middle school, Erna Laszlo, and I was very into makeup, especially Urban Decay. I vividly remember one Christmas Urban Decay came out with an on-the-go type palette of concealer, color corrector, and mascara that was housed in what was meant to look like a fancy lighter. I sadly could not find a photo of this on the internet. That sounds pretty damn cool. I love cool packaging. When I first found like Benefit and it was all pin-up girly, I was just like, ugh, the apex of the female experience. Benefit doesn't has not uh, rebranded or done anything to their packaging in a very long time. But I do appreciate them. I can always get a last-minute brow lamination, which is important for me. Okay, I got to wrap it up get on the road but if you email me like after the time that I recorded this sorry I kind of decided to do this episode and wanted to like put it out within 24 hours I don't know why I felt inspired usually episodes take me longer but I felt like we could we keep this right and tight and uh (laughs) just talk through it this is one of those things that like I, I do I fear by Sunday you'll be tired of talking about it part of me I mean there's just so many sides to this again I don't have one like singular take it's kind of like same kit, different caboodle, you know, like everyone's a product of their time. And while I think there are implications of these behaviors, I think it's hard to know how to overhaul them in the face of so much peer participation. So I don't really know what to do, but I do love the idea of the, those of you that said like joining in on a ritual together of the classics with a brand they're interested in, just like cleansing, moisturizer, sunscreen, like skip the toner prompts, like not withholding and not shaming, but as my mom likes to say, pacing. and. Yeah, the stuff that is coveted, but maybe they're not ready for it's like, oh, yeah, that stuff you'll use eventually. And it's so fun. But for now, let's use this and we'll get there. <laughs> you know, it's probably what I'd try, but I don't know if it would work. Um, But yeah, I just think the I guess my only message would be like they aren't vapid creatures being poisoned uh, by the world around them in social media. In some cases, yes, but so are we. By countless trends, countless bad influences, countless troubling forms of media that perpetuated so many dangerous standards to us. And while a lot of those times weren't great, a lot of the those things didn't stand the test of time, but we did. And I would hope young women will do the same because it's really uncomfortable being a young person trying to get to know yourself when there's so much pressure to be like everybody else. And yeah, brands are status symbols that can precede you. And they can feel like your lifeline when you're trying to just stay afloat amidst your adolescent insecurity. And I really understand how sometimes material goods feel like a way to regain control of something that young women are so aware of yet have like absolutely no control over, which is their reputation. And I don't love it, but I get it. And beyond all this pathologizing, like I do think some of it's fun to play with our hair and our makeup and our skin and clothes and These are girly things that plenty of people genuinely like. And if adult men were eradicated from the earth tomorrow, you know what I'd do? I'd grab my dry shampoo and I'd brush up my brows and I'd toss on a little L'Oreal telescopic and I'd be on my way. Because I don't dress for women. I don't dress for men. Honestly, I think I dressed for me back then. And even though we all come with our own set of internalized standards that we still hold ourselves to, um, I think kind of the best part is combining them with the free will of adulthood and the opinions you can pick and choose to value. And it's fun to take a lifetime of loving all these things, maybe for reasons that were less than desirable, and then to use them to really contribute to your own joy. And I 
love getting ready. As I've told you, it's my yoga. Does my, does my maintenance routine wear on me a bit now that I'm a mom? Yeah, yeah, it does. Can't unpack that right now. But yeah. Also, if, a man, if adult men were eradicated from the earth tomorrow, what I would do after my dry shampoo and my brows and my L'Oreal telescopic is I would go on walks at night. That's all I want to do is go on walks at night. I love nighttime. I love when it's brisk. I love the streetlights. In my neighborhood, there's a lot of twinkle lights that people put from their house out to the trees. I love walking. I love thinking while walking. I love listening to music while walking. I love man charactering. And I, I, I'd love to listen to an audiobook or a podcast while I walk. But I like to walk in the dark. And I cannot. Then it bothers me. Okay, here's, here's the one thing I will say that I think is worth mentioning. And I don't want to pontificate. But I also, I'm not telling you this as a parent. I'm telling you this as a daughter. Because as a person that's like psychoanalyzed my own life to the tune of writing a book about a lot of my own personal stories, I, it made me feel very grateful for my parents' approach to my skills and my gifts. And it, it was important for me as a daughter, or uh, honestly essential, that appearance-based things were not held in higher regard than my hobbies, interests, skills, education, However soft or hard the skills were, however lacking they were and being able to be validated by formal metrics, like I really think that reinforcing effort towards just whatever they're passionate about, hobbies, interests, and reinforcing effort over excellence and making sure young girls are incredibly clear on their gifts outside of their appearance, outside of moving targets of beauty standards and trends, and clear that the status symbols will escape us. It's boyfriends will break up with us like what's left after those things when the world disappoints you matters and the feeling you get when you walk in your home as a child matters and like I said I'm not of the opinion that we shouldn't tell girls they're pretty I don't know I feel like that's overcorrecting I just think it's about balance like teen talk Barbie said four phrases to represent her multitudes and they still took her off the shelves because of her dimensions that were a little too shallow and I don't think we should ever be shaming young people for those parts of them I just think there's balance to be found in it's about making sure they're confident, but not convinced they only have one trait to trade on, that it's a function of other people's opinions and not their own organic and replenishing sources of self-worth. And with my parents, like I really think about a lot how the world could be a harsh place where I felt insecure and I felt ugly. Somebody like made fun of me or I had my heart broken or whatever. Again, I'm not meaningfully oppressed. I'm fine. It's just, you know, kid stuff. When I walked through the garage and into the kitchen and greeted my mom after school, she would never really indulge me in like school gossip and talking about boys. She never put placed more interest in that stuff over like my poetry, <laughs> over like what I thought about something. We did a lot of crafting together. We did a lot of activities together. We, we shopped and did the consumerism things. Sure. But like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like I obsessed over all of these things outside my home and I would feel really bad about myself outside my home. But once I passed over the threshold, I felt like a goddamn genius. I felt beautiful. I knew I was okay. And it made all the difference. And throughout my book, I talk about all these external forces that could, would break down my confidence that I think are kind of unavoidable in the nurture aspect of life. And my nature is to be hypersensitive and to internalize stuff more than most people probably. But I think that the only reason I like withstood and observed and wrote and journaled about all of this stuff and like spent my whole life like collecting all this information was because it, there, it was ultimately disconnected from my gut. And because I knew who I was at home, I knew that I was more than these metrics that mean girls or boys were holding me to or more than my 
grades that the school system prioritized over my skills that weren't in the talented and gifted programs or, you know, weren't, didn't make me at the top of my class. My parents still made me feel smart in other ways by fostering my talents. And I just, I don't know, I'd be remiss not to mention that like, yeah, you should let people have fun and not shame them. But I think the only reason I was able to achieve any sort of balance in life is because I knew that's not all there was and that's not all that mattered. But in my book, I, I doodled the end papers and I have a chapter about like handwriting and I just kind of wanted it to be like an example of honoring the things that, I don't know, my parents always encouraged. They were always just like blown away by my poems, by my birthday banners, by my drawings, my doodling. My mom saved them all. So I I have my doodles and on the end papers, I have my handwriting on the cover. Each section split up by a different poem. It's just kind of like I don't know. I feel kind of emotional when I think about it. Maybe now that I'm a parent that I I really just, it's not a story of greatness or excellence. Like I'm a pretty average person, but I've always been very verbal. And that's because they recognized that, encouraged it. And I was reinforced for that far and above anything else was being a decent wordsmith. And I just felt so good in that skill. It just is something they've carried with me my whole life. And I just don't think it's a coincidence how the words just like spilled out of me onto these pages. And I feel grateful to have access to that form of self-expression through that encouragement. And um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I hope I'm not being preachy. I just, just, just telling you that from my experience as a daughter, looking back on her life, it's kind of like what Caroline said with Plathville. She's like, you can't call yourself a good parent when all your kids are under 18. Call me in 20 years and <laughs> calling you and telling you 20 years later. I really do think that it made a big difference that they weren't obsessed with me getting A's. They weren't, I didn't have to be first place in sports. They just wanted me to try stuff. Then honest effort and um, the things I was really good at. And I, that sparked my passion. I think that that being reinforced just like gave me so much confidence that I wasn't finding anywhere else. And I wouldn't have found anywhere else because if the school system's not valuing it, if you're, it's not something your friends care about, if it's not something that's cool, do you think, you know, doing poetry readings at age 13 was cool? It wasn't. But like my mom and dad and grandma were there. and They were like, yeah. And I was like, and I felt so cool. And it was my first taste of like reading something I wrote in front of people. And I think of that version of me every single time I'm on stage. I'm going to send out this full essay, I think, in my like Substack because I didn't end up using it. And I don't even remember why. I remember why I made a lot of choices in this book, but I was at the time like, when I, by the time I finished it and edited it back and I needed to like cut stuff for word count, I was just being ruthless. And in hindsight, I'm like, there's so much of this that like actually would have really tied things together. But yeah, I have a broader essay on confidence that I think I'm going to send on a sub stack soon. We talked about this on the Barbie episode, but I love it so much. Part of it says, while researching for this book, I came across a quote from an interview with Stanford University psychologist Carol Dweck, and it's been buried in my brain ever since. She said, if life were one long grade school, women would be the undisputed rulers of the world. Dramatic pause. I wonder if part of my obsession with childhood nostalgia is partially because that's the last time I felt more marked by possibility than expectation, more defined by what I loved than by being liked, before my purpose felt eroded to seeking male validation and every social function became an opportunity to ask about my relationship and or marital and or child rearing status. My confidence was a function of my capabilities, of the contents of my heart and soul, prior to reducing myself over the years 
to need to be hot and fun to get men to like me, to hustle and grind to be taken seriously, to find fulfillment as a wife and mom, and thus defined by who I am to other people. In our girlhood, we are allowed to exist. We belong to ourselves. So many of the essays in this book hinge upon one moment or memory I once saw as innocuous and granular, but upon excavating, found they represented a broader theme about when my confidence and self-worth started to erode during my youth and the related repercussions I've experienced into adulthood. They're small things, like the first time boys made fun of my interests, when the church made me feel broken, guilty, and shameful, when I started to equate my worth with male validation or my relationship status, the type of fairly common moments that happen in life that seem inconsequential, yet in hindsight you realize they never passed through you, they stuck around. I think about the purity and blank slate of youth in contrast with the noise and the weight of what we carry as adults, and it would appear that puberty is when I developed the shelving for holding on to negative feelings and self-doubt. Going back through some of these memories, it helped me acknowledge their realities, yet fully witness their expiration, as I no longer identify with the person who stockpiled all the ways she fell short, who thought she couldn't rule the world. Of course, there are countless variables for why women don't rule the world after grade school rooted in complicated systems of power involving sexism, racism, and economic inequality that remain committed to maintaining, if not widening, that gap. Those intersections deserve our prioritization and attention, and focusing on something like confidence feels abstract and lacking in urgency compared to the more dire things women are facing, both domestically and globally. For for the purposes of this book, to reflect on my experiences as, as a millennial woman, I started to examine moments in my youth during that age range when my confidence started to break down and explore the implications. Even if it's not the most important thing, in the off chance there's something young women possess in grade school, or there are things we lose in puberty that we can learn from and offset, to help make us rulers of the world, or at least give the next generation a much better chance, I'm interested. I'm interested in the insight you can glean from hindsight, the joy to be found in reminiscing, and the lessons I can learn, if anything, to break cycles for other young women so they grow up internalizing less barriers to self-acceptance. Anyway, you guys, I guess that's the only plan I have as a If I ever, especially have a daughter in grade school, you know, I just want to value and encourage the sustaining of that the purity of that confidence when you don't know better for as long as I can and I think it's a really beautiful thing um to look at kind of you know the audacity of young girls sometimes for all the ways we absolutely unacceptable to mistreat people and adults in public and to destroy things there's also something I think really beautiful about thinking of them as having the ability to rule the world if we can do what we can to intervene and not allow the world to erode their self-esteem in ways ours was. That is not our fault, but certainly I think we can learn from it by reminiscing through our own girlhoods and try to do what we can to break down those barriers, even if in the meantime it means they are absolutely destroying their moisture barriers. All right, you guys, love you. If you feel like it and you want to do me a solid rate and review five stars, Spotify, you just tap the stars. Apple reviews, it just helps so much. Podcast, it's tough out there. <laughs> and I'm just so grateful you're still here. At Kate Kennedy, follow me on Instagram. At Be There in Five is the podcast Instagram. Come see me on tour, be there in five.com slash live hyphen shows. My book, did you hear? I wrote a book. Oh my God, I'm so annoying. It's called One in a Millennial. And I can't wait to see so many of you so soon. Come back next week for an airing of one of the chapters of my audiobook for free. You've got mail about AOL Instant Messenger and me trying to seduce men online, only to find out I was kind of just a soft place to verbally land and people would kind of take advantage of how I would listen to them and I would have really in-depth dynamic conversations with them, but then they wouldn't even talk to me in person. <laughs> I, 
Again, I don't feel bad for myself. I just want to bring to life these experiences that I don't think that are that uncommon, especially not for the best. I know there are others of you out there that are skilled with words, but awkward in person, and people would fall for you online, but not even look your direction in the halls. And it was tough. (laughs) All right, you guys. As always, let me know your thoughts, and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five, I swear.